2: Hello, and welcome to the EDH RecCast. My name is Joey Schultz, and I'm joined, as always, by my fantastic co-hosts. Up first, when he wins an award, he doesn't just thank the Academy, he thanks the Tolarian Academy.
0: It's Matt Morgan. So Joey, there was one time I went on a first date, and I invited this nice young woman to uh, to meet me at the gym, and uh, she didn't show up, and it kind of was weird, but um, I knew things weren't going to work out. <sighs> Oh no! Now, Matt. Okay, there's a lot of layers to that joke. I get it. Um, You can just pick it up and put it right back down.
2: Uh, Okay, I see what you did. See, people feel like I (laughs) am fake when I laugh at your dad jokes, but I think all of those folks out there who think that I'm just like being insincere with my laughter at your dad jokes are missing the point. What this is is clearly Stockholm syndrome. I can't escape (laughs) from your dad jokes, so I might as well enjoy myself. I think
0: it's more like a chuckling scoff than actual laughter. It's either that or
2: I break my nose from <laughs> face palming too hard every week. You know, yes, that too. Oh, goodness. All right. Up next, he just saw the commander designs for the new Warhammer decks and
1: he's wondering what in the brawl is going on over there. It's Dana Roach. Um, I went to a wedding last weekend. It was uh, actually pretty beautiful. Um, even the cake was in tears. Mm. <laughs> Dang it. All right. So, yep.
2: Because uh, <laughs> there was. You you gotta grin and bear it. That's just the way it is. Otherwise, I will I'll face too too much. I love you guys. Thank you. Thank you, Dana. Thank you for that. I'm glad to help. You're, I appreciate it. <laughs> Anyway, this is the EDHREC cast. Let's just get on with ourselves. There it is. EDHREC is the best deck building resource on the web for the commander format, compiling data from deck lists all over the internet to provide helpful recommendations for new commander decks. And here on the podcast, we love to give that data a little more context. Matt, do you mind telling us what it is that we are talking about in this week's episode?
0: Well, this week we're going to talk about decks that like to dirtle maybe a little too much and have problems just from a deck building perspective, when it comes to closing out games.
2: Yeah, yeah. Decks that, that dirtily commander decks is uh, kind of an interesting thing. Maybe this is a conflict that we have in our own deck building. Maybe it's a thing that we've played a lot. uh, And yeah, it'll be interesting to explore to make sure that your decks are not just spinning their wheels, but that they're actually definitely going somewhere. So that'll be a whole lot of fun. But before we get into that, we've got a couple of quick shout outs to do.
1: First, I'd like to thank Chase, also known as Manic Curves, for their work editing the show. You can find them on Twitter at mana curves,
0: And you can support the show by liking, subscribing to these videos on YouTube, subscribing in your podcast app. But also you can do so over at patreon.com slash Retcast, mm-hmm. where we have patron tiers of all levels. Whether you want to see all of our historic challenges, stats, picks, you want to see the episodes a day early, there's all that and more, including the very special patron shout-out, uh, which you can get just by going to patreon.com slash Retcast. And this week, we're giving a very special thank you to Sil- Sylvia Krauss, So thank you so much. Um, it's not sauerkraut, which is good because we can like you more for that. <laughs> oh, do you not like sauerkraut? What? Oh, not what? at all. <gasps> That's disgusting. How dare you? Do you like it?
1: It's fine. It's We're it's getting right. a new I... host. You have to hate that stuff. Yeah, I don't know if I can accept that. It's pretty horrifying. Thank, thank you, you, Sylvia, for outing thank you, Sylvia. Joey. <laughs>
0: thank you for outing Joey as liking sauerkraut, <laughs> which is absolutely disgusting. Uh, don't at me.
2: I'm I'm sauerkraut ambivalent, okay. Mm. I don't I neither love nor hate it, but I do love <laughs> our patrons, including you, Sylvia. Thank you for the support, Matt. You are so weird. Okay, let's just get right to our main topic because we have <laughs> we're off to a weird start. All right, we are talking about dirtly commander decks, decks that will probably like like take a lot of game actions or they'll do a lot you have to jump through a lot of hoops but they might not actually once you're done with the turn maybe they didn't go necessarily too far or matt i like the way that you said it that maybe these are decks that might struggle to actually close a game out uh, could be another way to look at it as well so how about we just pass this right off to you when we're talking about dirtily commander decks or dirtle decks in general i guess what is the thing that comes to mind how do you approach um yeah how do you approach this topic basically
0: well, I guess we should probably define dirtily because it's something very specific, I would say, to, to Magic the Gathering and, and board games in general. But when mm. we say dirtily decks, we mean decks that kind of sit around. They do a lot of things, but they're not necessarily trying to win the game in any given step. Uh, Brago decks are kind of renowned for this. They they accrue a whole bunch of value. They get a whole bunch of things going, but it doesn't actually help to win the game mm. because there's so many just different game actions that... Uh, maybe they're they're getting their own little benefits, but they're not actually moving the game state
1: forward in a way that's going to cause it to end anytime soon. Okay, it, it, these decks also tend to be good. I guess is the point, like mm-hmm. because there's plenty of bad decks that don't advance the game state either. Maybe <laughs> yes. do things. We're gonna tend to focus on commanders that are actually effective. They generate value. They they have the ability to affect the game. They just have a difficult time turning that corner and actually closing things out. And I think that's an important distinction. Mm. Or maybe they never turn the corner, which is my biggest right. beef yeah. with some of these types of <laughs> decks. Yeah. No,
2: that that is definitely a good distinction. And I think it's probably really easy for us to contrast against other commanders that like, it's really easy to recognize commanders that come out and make like an immediate impact as soon as they hit the field, like Maelstrom Wanderer, for example. Like that is not going to be in any way a Dirtly commander because you get two Cascades as soon as you play it. The battlefield looks different as soon as you cast that card. And it definitely is pushing things forward as soon as you cast that card. And they're a little bit more brazen, a little more out there. Whereas some of the Dirtly decks, like the value, you'll get a lot of value. But Matt, a refrain that I know you've said a couple of times on the podcast before is that value isn't victory. So these might be commanders that accrue a lot of value but is that value actually helping you win anytime soon not necessarily so you have to put a lot of extra thought into okay how's this deck actually going to close things down
0: yeah it's it there's a lot of decks out there we're going to cover a few of them but it's not really even necessarily attached to a certain command or strategy because obviously you can build decks however you want but just what what we see on edh rec what the typical deck looks like that's kind of what we're going to focus on
2: hmm I mean, we mentioned Brago. And actually, Dana, I know that you have some of the most experience playing with and against Brago. That's a very famous Blink Commander. Do you have thoughts about that one being sort of a
1: dirtily commander? Uh, yeah, because my friend Max, who who pilots the deck, will be the first person to admit it's, it's a struggle trying to figure out how to close out games with that deck, other than just hoping you can continuously smack someone in the face with that moldrifter that you're casting just so you can blink <laughs> it and draw a couple of cards. Because because Brago is basically a creature that when you connect with Brago, when you deal combat damage, you can temporarily exile uh, a permanent you control and then bring it back into play. So basically, you're going to run a bunch of things with Enter the Battlefield abilities and try to trigger them by hitting somebody with Brago. Mm. Um, the problem is they like tend to not attach useful Enter the Battle abilities end of the battlefield abilities onto like, you know, six, six flyers or something that are efficiently (laughs) costed. So you're going to eventually probably chip away at people's life total with those creatures. But like that can take forever in, in that style of deck. So you need to find other ways to win. And the way that deck tends to be constructed makes it difficult to combine those two things, combine the value you want to generate with, Come with a way to actually close out the game. Right.
0: Well, and I think the most egregious part about Brago King Eternal is, like you said, Dana, it exiles things, but it's not just a target permanent. It's it's any number of non-land permanents that you control. Yes. So Brago players are able to blink their entire board, which not only creates a whole bunch of triggers, but it just takes forever for these decks to resolve. Uh, If you have an Aether Channel or one of those new cards from Dominar United, you have three options of what you can do when that card enters his battlefield. If you have OG Exquisite Blade, all of a sudden you're scrying a bunch. You're probably drawing some cards. You have all sorts of things going on. And, and these decks are very, very good at getting a lot of value. Mm. But it's, it's finding ways to convert that value into meaningful game actions that are going to help you win the game.
2: Yeah, honestly, I would probably say that like blink decks generally sort of struggle with this. I think yeah. like, a lot of the things that you want to repeat over and over again are those moldrifters, drifters, are those cloud blazers where you can draw a bunch of cards as they repeatedly enter, leave, enter, leave. And that is really good. Like you'll have more options. It's going to help you stay in the game. But they are, you know, if you're just chipping away in the air, that's not necessarily realistic. Like a- another one that comes to excuse me, not realistic as a way to like close the game out in a, a proper amount of time. We're right. not giving your opponents extra turns that they might be able to catch you out and, and actually like overcome uh, your, your your commanding lead at that point. Uh, but another example that comes to my mind here especially would be like Rannar the Ever Watchful, which is another Azorius commander that cares about Blink and foretell. And it makes you a bunch of tokens as a result of that. And that's a really cool effect. But again, it's just a bunch of 1-1 one, one flying tokens. And you would need to make a lot of those before you have what I would call a, a reasonable win condition in play. And I think as a result of that, something that we see, especially in Blink decks, is that a lot of players seem to default to like infinite combos as a way to finally close things down. Like Brago is famous for having an infinite combo with Stryonic Resonator, where you can repeatedly do those effects over and over again. And that is, in fact, going to make you like infinite creatures on board so that you do have a, a lethal next turn. Um, and, and infinite combos are sometimes a, a bit of a touchy point amongst commander players. But I mean, I guess I'll say that I would prefer like a combo like that happens to make the game close down as opposed to the game takes, you know, another hour for the, the deck to finally win. So that's where I'm at.
1: I mean, it definitely beats dying to a mole drifter over the course of 20 turns.
0: Yes. Yeah, mm-hmm. exactly. yeah. Well, and that's 20 turns per person, too. So you're three, right, yes, right. you yeah. have the, the mole drifter, but you have three other players you have to take out. And so, yeah, it's a lot of times you're just able to find your combos super quick. So it kind of becomes the the meta for a lot of these decks where you're able to get so much value and draw so many cards. And a lot of these decks, hmm. you just find your combo every fairly reliable every single game. So that just becomes the easiest way to actually close it out because you have so much value engine
1: built into the rest of the deck. And one thing that I think we will notice as we talk about the different decks that tend to do this is they all tend to have to devote a significant amount of their deck building resources to doing whatever that strategy is. Mm. And those resources then don't necessarily lend themselves to a win condition. So you have to run a bunch of creatures that, that blink, th- that have ETB in, in your Brago deck, and you probably want to have other things to facilitate that, ways to p- protect that whole thing. That doesn't necessarily leave you a ton of room for putting in ways to win games because those require separate cards right sometimes you're lucky enough that your deck doesn't necessarily require sec- separate cards to win i i you know brago's an azorius deck i have an azorius sphinx tribal deck that does kind of play a little bit of control not dissimilar to a brago deck it just so happens that i have 20 creatures in that deck that are all evasive six six beaters <laughs> that also generate me you know card draw somewhere to a brago deck so like in that situation, I don't need to necessarily worry about dirtling because I am fortunate enough that the way that deck is constructed, I have a win condition baked into every one of those bodies, kind of, mm-hmm. in a way that a Brago deck doesn't. It's much easier to kill somebody with a handful of sphinxes that I can maybe give double strike to than it is to giving a drift for double strike. Yeah, absolutely. I think especially the fact that like there are a lot of players,
2: probably more experienced players who will be used to seeing some of these commanders and know that they tend to default to something like an infinite combo. So there might be players who sit down against your blink deck who are expecting you to combo. And if that's, that's just the thing that you ought to be prepared for. That's the thing that you ought to be aware of is that like sometimes that's why that perception will be there, even if that wasn't a thing that you were planning to do. But this definitely requires a lot of extra thought to be put into, okay, what are definitely the win conditions of this deck going to be? Um, blink decks i think are probably one of the strongest examples that we'll have of a very obviously dirtly commander but there are plenty more like another one that comes to my mind would be like gavi nest warden for example that's the jeskai cycling commander and it's really fun to do a bunch of cycling stuff but that is a lot of drawing and discarding and a lot of drawing and discarding and then a lot of trying to get your second draw step every turn and a lot of afar god of the polis and a whole bunch of other strange interactions with cycling cards just so that you can make a two two cat creature token
0: yeah, Gabby Nestwarden is kind of like the uh, Angie Falcon Wrath type of deck where you go so hard on one theme, whether it's cycling or madness or whatever, that the rest of the deck ends up being air because you're so focused on trying to do that one thing, which is why, you know, the, the Angie Falcon Wrath decks end up having that famous World Gorger anime dead combo in there mm-hmm. because you're just so concentrated. You have to have something that's going to be able to win because madness cards call me crazy, aren't really great <laughs> at being able to win games for you. Right. In both of those cases, you have to choose,
2: You have to be very, very careful about the things that you are selecting for what your win conditions will be. Like for me, for example, in both of the the decks we just named, Gavi and Anya Falkenrath, I would say, excuse me, uh, Miss Angie, that's the official pronunciation, uh, is like Psychosis Crawler is one of the first things that jumps to my mind. I'd be so excited to play something like that. Or uh, Brawl and Skyshark Rider for both of those decks would also be awesome because as you discard a bunch of cards, you're dealing more damage. But like they, those win conditions kind of run out pretty fast. You have to like hope that you find those soon, so that the rest of the deck can actually like, okay, this will, will pull off in, into victory. You have to find a way to like make those things lethal, and the obvious ones might be obvious, but there also might be fewer of them than you initially think. So maybe you have to branch out a little bit more and and see what else is going to be out there for you to actually find the realistic win conditions that are dense enough to be uh, to, to see them in the games in a timely fashion.
1: That's really what it comes down to is like finding a way to to have not just one like multiple win conditions in these decks and find space for them while the deck is also while you still have enough cards to do what you're trying to make the deck do as well Mm -hmm. now dana as you mentioned earlier like we've mentioned
2: examples of like brago which we know is good and and gavi is certainly very popular too but like you mentioned that these aren't just like oh you know it's doing a lot and not going very far because the commander is bad not at all like and i think our next example will be like a, a, a the peak example of this but like I would wager that Muldrotha qualifies as potentially a very dirtly commander. And that is clearly also one of the more busto commanders we've seen. Like that that one's really, really good and also very popular. Like I feel like that also qualifies as as dirtle, probably depending on how it's built, or it has a risk of being built
1: to be dirtly unless you're being attentive to it. Does does that does that track with you, do you think? It it, it tracks and it also, I guess this is a good is a good time with any to mention one component of this as well is these things all tend to be a little bit time consuming. Mm-hmm. So not only do they not necessarily have an easy way to generate that win for you, they take up actually like physical time for you to do all the things you're doing. You're playing your Mul- your Muldrotha deck. Okay, I'm, I can cast multiple things from the graveyard this turn. Which of those things do I want to cast? How can I sequence them? What am I going to sacrifice to get back in the graveyard so I can do a next turn? How can I protect that graveyard from the bug effect or something? Like, there's a lot of things going on that you have to position and maintain that don't necessarily bring you closer to winning the game.
0: Yeah, what well, well, Joey, jo- or not Joey, Dana joked about, you know, the the Drifter beats. Uh, it's going to take 20 turns to do that. Uh, Glenalender Archmage is the same thing. It's also a 2-2. Two, two, yeah, and right. you're, you're going to get so much value. Or, or Ravenous Chupacabra. They're <laughs> right. great cards, but they're not necessarily proactive cards. They're just, they're, they're reactive. They're, they're adjusting. But also, they take a lot of time to resolve. Dana's absolutely right. They, these can be very time-consuming on the watch decks. I feel like also a, a characteristic of some of these dirtily decks is that
2: they're very good at not losing. Which is different than being very good at winning. Like Muldrotha and Marin of Clan Naltaloth, although I think, I'm not sure that I would qualify Marin as being Dirdly necessarily, but both of those commanders are famous for Spore Frog recursion. Like you're constantly returning to the field this thing that you can sacrifice to make sure that you don't take combat damage. And that is going to... Or or Glacial Chasm. Like, Muljotha can also get back that land that prevents you from taking damage. It is hard to break through those, especially when any attempt to destroy those things means that Muljotha is just going to get them right back the very next turn. Those are hard to break through. But they're also like definitely not winning the game at all. But it's hard to kill as well. Like these are resilient decks. is a, a characteristic of dirtly decks. I think.
1: Oh yeah, very much so. Um, in you know, it's probably not a coincidence that a, a handful of the ones we've talked about are also playing blue. <laughs> so not, not only are they resilient, and not only do they generate plenty of resources, in a lot of cases they have counter magic to back up all the things they're doing as well. So sure, it, it it's it's one extra thing that you have to fight through to stop this slow deck that's accumulating resources without actually necessarily winning the game. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no,
2: that's a good point. And honestly, another uh, example that I had put down when we were uh, putting this uh, this show topic idea together was another commander that also includes blue, which is Shorakai, the Genesis engine. I mean, that, that one's also like amazing. That's the vehicle commander that doesn't necessarily need to be built with a bunch of vehicles if you don't want to, but it taps to draw you two cards, discard a card, and it makes a pilot token. And a lot of that deck, I think, it really is focused on, like, here's a, a lot of... Like game actions over and over again where you're like untapping it, retapping it to draw cards, discard, untapping it with a whole bunch of other effects, unbender tines and and other things like that. Uh, and that's a lot of game actions and you're going to end up with probably a couple of 1-1s, which is really good and, and really helpful. But again, that's a deck that like might be difficult to pull together a win condition, which is why I think a lot of players have defaulted to finding combos that work with tapping and untapping it over and over again and making a whole bunch of creature tokens like that. Uh, I feel like a lot of shortcut players have kind of found themselves in that niche because just relying on one and vehicles is not always a reliable win condition, whereas a combo will actually get you there. But again, yeah, it's a commander that contains blue and is therefore very resilient, especially because it's making you blockers and drawing you a lot of cards.
0: Well, Joey, you, you mentioned specific commanders so far. We've done this. Um, I'm going to throw a whole category, a whole strategy, I guess, really under the bus here. Um, Super Friends decks definitely fall into this category of... Dirtily decks that they take a lot of game actions, they do a lot of stuff, they get a lot of value, but they sometimes can struggle to actually close games out. Um, If you want to talk about a very just time-consuming strategy, uh, you have to be very, very skilled with a Super Friends deck to really know how to, to play that and not just kind of drag it out. It ends up being solitaire a lot of times. Just because there are so many game actions, not only are you casting all your spells like a normal deck would be doing, but also, you also have these planeswalkers on the battlefield that have their own decision trees to, to play through and, and resolve. Um, if you have a Jace, the Mind Sculptor, and you're brainstorming every turn, that's that's a whole long spell to resolve that you're doing every single turn on your Jace. Uh, if you have any given planeswalker, there's just so much to be going on there. Any of the Lilianas, there's just a lot of things you have to consider when you're resolving literally any of those abilities. And man, it's They can be very time-consuming, there's a lot going on, but then when you talk about, okay, well how does all this value win? A lot of times these Super Friends decks, that takes a while for them to actually snowball to a win. Even when they ult a Planeswalker
2: too, like even if you get the doubling season instantly ult a Planeswalker, mm-hmm. I mean, Planeswalker ultimates are designed not to automatically win the game. You still have to put together a little bit of extra, but like there are Planeswalkers out there that prevent damage to you as their ultimate or that stop people from playing non-creature spells or that counter the first spell that an opponent plays each turn. Or one. I think there's a Nojani that just gains you 100 life. And like those are great when you ult them and it's going to be, again, really hard to kill you. but. Yeah, ulting a Planeswalker is not the end of the game by any means. So even when you achieve the thing your deck wants to do, you still have a little bit more to go. So what is your win condition past that point? Yeah, that's a great example of a category.
0: And if you want to talk about maybe not winning, but also finding ways to not lose... Gaining a hundred life is a really, really good way to <laughs> yeah. not lose a game.
1: <laughs> well, like we play a game or two pretty much every week on twitch.tv. Mm-hmm. Hey, and there's a reason I think once ever I've played my Jerry with eyes open super friends deck on stream because <laughs> it is dirtily and, and while I admit it's dirtily, I've actually taken a look over the years at, like, maybe converting that to a different style Super Friends deck. I'd still like to have one, and I'm, I, am of course, assumed Mono White is probably the worst way to do it. But every time I look to do that, I then look back at my deck and realize, well, almost all of my Planeswalkers in that deck make tokens. And I'm in Mono White, so I have access to things like Catherine's Crusade and uh, Divine Visitation, like, ways to actually make those tokens kill people. I I actually do have win conditions in that deck, and whenever I look to, like, make it into a different color combination, I feel like there's actually kind of less ways to, because most other colors planeswalkers don't necessarily make tokens. Oh wow! So it, it, as dirtily as that deck is, it's still probably less dirtily than most superfriends decks. Oddly enough, considering the fact that it's mono white. Interesting. That's very interesting. And hey, I'm glad that we found a non-blue example
2: of a dirtly deck. Let's let's find more of those. Yes, <laughs> there we go. Um, yeah. another few that we had written down here would be uh, Thantis, the War Weaver. Like I. I tried building a Thantus deck. That's the Jund Spider that makes all of your opponent's creatures attack each turn. But if they attack you, Thantus gets plus one counters. It took so much to try and make that deck do its thing. And at the end of the day, the thing that I was trying to do was make my opponents attack, and hopefully not me, and that's very hard to do because <laughs> it's not its not goad. It, it's an effect that they just have to attack. They can point it at you. Do I have enough defenses? They have to set up defenses. And you also have to make sure that your opponents have enough creatures in play that like will be good once you finally get them to attack with each other. Is that good for you or were they going to attack with those creatures anyway? Are you actually causing them an issue or disrupting their game plan when you finally get your commander to do the thing you wanted it to do? So that's another example that strikes me and
0: not blue. Well, Joy, I, you say it's another non-blue Dirtle deck. I'm going to go back to blue because I want to throw blue just as many hate balls as I can. <laughs> uh, oh, man. <laughs> so so Lynch Cheerful Tormentor is one that also kind of comes to mind. Lynch uh, Cheerful Tormentor is that Grixis-colored Curse tribal deck, which it's a very, very cool idea. We don't often get enchantment matters type of stuff in Grixis colors, but here we are. But also when you look at the typical curse deck and just what those curse cards are, those those enchantment auras that go on players, a lot of times they're getting meaningful, not really meaningful, but like minimal effect, Mm. but you're getting it recursively. So you're getting very, very small things like whenever you have the curse card, so curse of verbosity, whenever somebody attacks the enchanted player, you and that player draw a card. Uh, curse of Surveillance, where at the beginning of everybody, the enchanted players upkeep any number of target players other than that player draw cards equal to the number of curses attached to that player. So you're getting a lot of really cool little effects, but they're not actually doing a whole lot of damage or finding ways for players to lose. It's just more and more value. There are a few that do pretty well when it comes to actually, you know, making people lose the game, but they're kind of few and far between, especially in Grix's Colors.
2: Yeah, no, I feel that. And especially, I feel like there are a lot of curses that don't necessarily, like, cooperate with each other mm-hmm. as well. Like, some curses are very attack-focused, and then there are plenty of other curses that care about milling your opponents. And it's just like, uh, those, that's, you know, that's that's chocolate and bacon. Those don't necessarily work together, so you also have to, like, curate probably an already limited number of curses to even fit in that deck. And even Lin's own ability, actually, would probably classify here, where, like you're going through a lot of steps to give away a curse to another person, detach it from yourself and give it to someone else so that you can draw two cards. And like, there's a lot of stuff that's involved in all of that. Like you have to... Usually use stuff like claws of gix and things to so like try and sacrifice curses that might end up attached to you, and you're putting a bunch of other stuff into your deck to try and mitigate the curses that might fall on onto you, so that you can buy yourself time to give them away. Also, you can do the thing of drawing two cards, and it's th- that took a lot of effort just for a divination effect, is all.
1: Well, and while those that particular deck might not be time consuming in terms of like casting those curses, you've created this board state now where everyone has to remember what cards that don't belong to them are now attached to them or their opponents too Mm -hmm. so you're you're creating kind of Mm. this this mental tax you're putting on everybody else too which is can slow the game down for sure oh dude mental tax i feel like that actually leads us to another category
2: of decks that would also definitely i probably should have led with this one uh but like dungeon decks (laughs) i feel like this is actually a reason that a lot of players don't want to bring the initiative into the game like there are a lot of people who will put monarch cards into their decks because they want to put the monarch into the game because it's pretty straightforward whoever has the monarchy will draw an extra card at the end of the turn but i have not seen quite as much attention for initiative getting into regular commander games unless the deck is fully 100 a dundon's deck like sephiris for example because if a card says you take the initiative on it and it's like one of your only things suddenly the initiative on on everyone's board it's a lot to keep track of that not everyone's always in the mood for You probably want a higher density of initiative stuff to actually care about putting that into a deck rather than the one-off cards like you might see with Monarchs. But even then... Dedicated dungeon decks. It takes a lot of going through the dungeon to accumulate a lethal board state as well. That is a lot of stuff you
1: gotta do, and and you're compounding that by the fact that like right, you're you're going through the dungeon one step at a time, and no one remembers what the dungeon's individual rooms are. So like, that's adding a mental tax. And then in that deck, what you tend to be doing is they're doing a lot of blink things, or a lot of clone things. There's a lot of like additionally dirtly things they're doing. So they can generate multiple initiative and dungeon triggers per turn to kind of work their way around the the kind of baked in speed bump there to keep you from, from doing that. So the the deck is just encouraging you to do all kinds of dirty things to maximize finding any way to actually win. Yeah, I, I think as much as I like
0: Monarch and the initiative as mechanics, initiative kind of misses for me because you're, you're asking people to bring game pieces they wouldn't otherwise have anything to do with or need to know at all. But if you have initiative, somebody can take that from you and then they also have it. So yep. you're kind of asking people to play your deck on a little bit of a scale there. Hmm. And it most people, if they want to play your deck, they're going to play theft decks. and They're going to steal your things instead of stealing the mechanics in your cards, which sometimes can be a major miss for some people.
2: Yeah, if you're playing initiative cards, you should be bringing four copies of the initiative thing so that you can give them to everyone. But like, make sure that you've brought tokens that they will need. I feel the same way about Grismold players. That's another deck that gives a lot of tokens to other people. Make sure that you've brought a, a, a substantial number of plant tokens for the entire table to make sure that, that they're good there. Mm-hmm. But but like on this subject, I think uh, the dungeon decks, especially Sephiroth, stands out here as an example of like mm-hmm. people have had to get kind of creative with what are the win conditions of that deck going to be. Sephiroth, whenever you complete a dungeon, you get a creature back from your graveyard onto the battlefield. And in the data on EDH Rec, a lot of the creatures that we tend to see as sort of top ends for that ability tend to be kind of brutal, like Elish Norns and Toxrills, because of how dirtly the rest of the deck is. Like, you've got some standout cards in that deck, like Radiant Solar will take you through a dungeon, like, three times in a single turn. That card's amazing. But going through the dungeon three times in a single turn does not a game win for you. So something like an Nelish Norn will actually potentially close things out. And that can be kind of jarring as an opponent when you see, oh, I didn't expect that that would be the final boss at the end of the dungeon. That's pretty different than what I expected the rest of the deck to do. But, I, I mean, that deck is looking for a way to close things out. And just going through the dungeon, barring an infinite combo, is not going to do it. And sometimes you need something that is a little bit more brutal at the top end to try and finally close the game down.
1: Yeah, I would say in the last year or so, the, the 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 dirtliest decks I've run into have been dungeon decks for sure, and probably in particular Sethra decks. Yeah, yeah, no, I can, I can totally feel it, and I don't think that, like, I, we probably should have mentioned this before, this
2: isn't bad, like, we've each said yeah. that we also have decks that dirtle, like, it's not a bad thing, it's just a thing to be aware of about your own decks, it's probably a thing we should have qualified earlier, but it's good to qualify it now, better late than never, right, Matt? Absolutely.
0: Yeah, it to- totally. Late, late than ever. I've never owned a Muldrotha deck ever. <laughs> there um, you go. Except that I have. I, I, like, I had a Moldrotha deck, and yes, that, that was a, one of the big reasons that as soon as I had a chance to change the commander, I did. Because it just, it turned into a case of, I felt like I was taking up more of the player's time than I felt okay with, as far as the other three people at the pod. Mm. And that was just an experience that I didn't enjoy for myself or putting other players through. Um, so I changed it up. That was just something that I just, I did not like. I have said many, many times on the podcast, like I like proactive decks. I like moving things forward. I like turning things sideways and just Moldrotha was not that deck for me. So instead I, that's what I made my Ukiman Kazur deck and I've had a blast ever since
2: and boy does that one move the game forward because you can't even block Ukima, and then even if you get rid of it it still deals like 10 damage to me and that's a conservative estimate because of how much you buff that thing up not that I'm you know it, not trying it to get deals to 10
0: damage to you but it kills Sheldon Menery whenever he comes <laughs> on our stream at twitch.tv slash edh <laughs> so that's that's what really matters
2: Let, let's be real it doesn't just
0: deal 10 damage to
2: me because when you attack me with your unblockable ukima, Dana like gives it plus 10 or in fact or a bunch <laughs> of other
1: it or something for sure
2: exactly okay yeah this is this is very interesting but before you guys have the chance to steal my segue from me i'm going to manually move us now into challenge the stats so that we can take a break from the dirtling and we can talk about some cards that are either over or underplayed on edh Rec. so let's take a break and talk about that
1: well i can hop right in here with my challenge of stats then um from way back in urza's gears set um the famous <laughs> urza's gears Urza's saga uh, you mean I, yeah sure you know, <laughs> both both names are uh, it has two official names Uh, Matt, Urza Saga is a land enchantment. There we we go. Come on, on, Matt. Joey, that's not even... uh, (sighs) Almost as bad as your sauerkraut stains. (laughs) (laughs) Anyway, one way to make cabbage better is to put it out in the sun. Um, (laughs) No, so... (laughs) Thran Turbine um, is a (laughs) one-mana artifact from from back in Urza's Gears. It says, during your upkeep, you may add up to two colorless mana to your mana pool, and this mana can't be spent to play spells. It's in 2000X and ADH Rack, so it's a terrible soul ring. Um, Except if your commander has an activated ability that requires mana to use. Um, You know, I, I ran this a few years back when I had... Temporarily built a Kenrith the Return King deck because Kenrith has a bunch of abilities, and you generally don't care about when you use those abilities. Mm. It's a pretty nice free source of mana during your upkeep, and there's a ton of commanders out there that have activated abilities that it's a very efficient way to pay for those. Um, You know, Zancha Sleeper Agent, for example, just lets you Ooh. spend your Thrand Dynamo mana and one additional land to shock someone and draw a card. There's Grenzo Dungeon, Dungeon Warden putting cards in the bottom of your library. There, there's a ton of things you can do during that upkeep, and it's a really efficient way to do that. So if you are playing a commander that has an activated ability that requires mana, and the timing is kind of irrelevant, take a look at thran turbine it's really efficient and it's a very cheap card that doesn't see almost any play and it should see a little bit more i am way into that that's clever i
2: really like it especially for zantia like oh that's such a i just like that commander in general too but yeah dan that's a cool pick i love it uh i'll move now to our listener submitted challenge this week if that's okay matt i want to make sure that my it's allowed that i'm not making you sour about the situation (laughs) make it happen what about kimchi? Like, do you like kimchi? Kimchi's amazing. Like, is that OK?
0: It's spiced, at least, though. We're never going to. OK, so our <laughs> listeners submit <laughs> a challenge.
2: This, this episode comes to us from Maxwell Nichols. Uh, Maxwell actually sent us an email years ago, and I think Maxwell was really on top of something because I've seen a lot of people talking about this online um, a little bit more recently as well. Um, wanted to challenge the card aetherworks marvel in treasure decks specifically so aetherworks marvel is the four mana kaladesh legendary artifact whenever a permanent you control is put into a graveyard you get an energy and then you can tap and pay six energy to look at the top six cards of your library and you may cast a card from among them without paying its mana cost and you put the rest on the bottom of your library in a random order currently only showing up in three thousand seven hundred decks right now And it is not showing up in a lot of treasure decks, but Maxwell, this is a great pick for treasure decks because those treasure's, technically hit the graveyard and then vanish, but that will give you a bunch of energy. So you can go through tons upon tons upon tons of energy and then just get free stuff with an Etherworks Marvel. Like you will have so much fuel for this card to just give you free spells every turn. And there just aren't a lot of treasure decks that are currently playing it. Jan Jansen, currently only about 6% of those decks are playing this card. Um, only about 9% of Jolene the Plunder Queen decks are playing Etherworks Marvel. So yeah, this was an email to us from years ago, but Maxwell, you were definitely on top of it. And this is definitely a very relevant card card right now. Sorry that it took us so long to get to your challenge, but Aetherworks Marvel is indeed a marvel, and I think it would be great for those treasure players. So good shout.
0: All right, Matt, now it's on to you. Well, my challenge this week is for one of the new commanders, which actually I'm kind of surprised that it's been as popular as it has so far, um, but it's Torwauki the Younger, which Dane and I got to talk about a little bit. Uh, man, it is very, very interesting. I'm excited to see what people are doing with it. Um, so, Torwalki the Younger is three and Rakdos colors, so a black and a red for a 3 3 with Reach and Lifelink. When, and whenever another source you controlled would deal non combat damage to a permanent or a player, it deals that much damage plus one to that permanent or player instead. And then also, whenever you cast an instant or sorcery spell, Torwalki deals two damage to any target. So, there's a lot going on here. There's two really cool abilities that you can focus in on. And I am a big fan of these ping style decks where you're able to cast a spell and, and burn people out, and you get all sorts of cast triggers, the spellcraft or the magecraft abilities. Whenever you cast an instant or sorcery, you get an ability. Mm. So one of the cards that I just I have always wanted to find a home for, and I think this really could be the place is Sir Kara the Bold. So Sir Kara the Bold is three red red. For a three-three human knight, that says whenever Sir Kara the Bold or an instant or sorcery spell you control deals damage to a player, you exile the top card of your library and you may play that card this turn, and then you can tap Sir Kara to deal one damage to any target. So if you're playing one of those more burn-focused strategies in these Torwauki decks, this is an amazing card advantage engine for you because you're able to cast a spell. You're going to get a lot of whenever you cast these instant or sorcery abilities. But also, Sir Care the Bold becomes a card advantage engine. One of the big reasons that burn decks in general don't translate very well to commanders because the cards and the mana required to actually burn your opponents out as compared to 20 life formats mm. is absolutely huge. The, the the amount of life you have to deal uh, in damage pales in comparison. So every single card, so dealing three damage with a lightning bolt isn't near as impactful as it, it would be in a modern deck or in a legacy deck. Sir Care of the Bold helps shore up one of the biggest weaknesses that those burn decks would have in Commander, which is where you're going to run out of cards extremely fast. For every lightning bolt or lightning strike that you cast targeting your opponents, you're going to get another card available to you that turn. That's going to help you crank through your decks, and you're going to be able to cast a lot more spells, but also this combines with a lot of those ping type of cards. You're going to have your firebrand archers, your gutter snipes. Mm. So not only are you fueling all the burn spells to the face, but you're enabling the rest of the deck to really churn through and you're going to get so much card advantage. It is a little bit of a deck building challenge, finding the balance between the payoffs and the setup cards. That's one thing we talk about a lot on this podcast. But Sir Care of the Bold is such a powerful engine in some of these decks that I think it should be showing up in so many more decks than it is currently. It's only an 18% of Torwauki, the younger decks. And if you're playing the burn-focused version that some people are, you absolutely want this card in your deck.
2: Well said. That's a, a very, very fun one. I am into it and I am scared of it, which is perfect. That's a, that's a good good line to, to ride, I think, for a lot of
0: commander gameplay. That's especially fun for burn. So yeah, I love it, Matt. Well, thank you. I, 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 you say you're you're into it, but are you here for it? That is the I ultimate am, question. I am here
2: for it. Yes. I am. Okay. I'm. I'm even there for it. All right, let's move <laughs> back into our into our main topic. So, I have a a, a question that I come to throw out here as we get into like you know this latter half of the podcast, I suppose, about where do we? How do I phrase this? Where do we draw the line between a deck that might be dirtly and a deck that's just bad? um maybe i've not phrased that that well necessarily but like for example i used to try to make an asmira deck uh asmira holy avenger which would get plus one counters equal to the number of stuff that died under your control that turn and i kept trying and trying and trying until eventually i was just like okay i'm gonna give up on this because this the selesney aristocrats is the odds are not in my favor here um so there have been times where i'm like i i think that i might just have to accept that this card i ran out of patience for it um So like Dana, for you, where do you draw the line on like this deck is dirtling too much and not, you know, it's just spinning wheels, not going far enough versus this is not even worth my time anymore. How does, how do you do that analysis in your brain?
1: Um, that's a good question. Um, I I guess it it comes down to whether or not (laughs) I, I can see potential paths to victory, even if I don't hit them consistently enough, and I at least have some reason to assume I can make that better. So, uh, to 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 come back to my most early deck, which would be my zero with eyes open super friends deck. Well, it, I I will probably continue to get white planeswalkers that make token creatures, um, and uh, so that that's an improvement just in terms of like being able to swing bodies at people. And one of the things white tends to do is have enchantments that buff up creatures. Well, I'm, I'm making tokens, so like. You know, I I will get something else. You know, we got Divine Visitation a few years back. I mentioned Catherine's Crusade. Mm -hmm. Um, Dictative Heliod gives everything plus two, plus two. There's a handful of those Planeswalkers in white that also tend to buff creatures. So, like, there are things in that deck that, that make me feel like even if it's a little bit dirtily right now, it's less dirtily than it was two years ago, and it will, in theory, be less dirtily two years from now. So, in the case of that deck... In the interim, I'm cautious with where I play it and with who I play it with because I know it can tend to be slow, but I also haven't taken it apart because I feel like slowly but surely either via me tweaking things, I'm making it less dirtily and I feel like over the course of, you know, the the foreseeable future, I will probably get more tools that will make it less dirtily as well or give me more ways to win games. Okay. Yeah, I
2: I can see that path lighting up in front. I can can see you finding those. And so, Matt, what about you? Is it sort of similar or do you have a different idea on it?
0: In order for me to consider a commander or a deck bad, I would say the commander is trying to do two things. Either it's too narrow or doesn't have enough support for what it's trying to do. Mm. I think uh, Redain God of the Worthy is a really good example of something that's just too narrow to be good. Where the, the big ability is, snowlands your opponent's control in a battlefield. Tap to then non-creature spells your opponents that they cast with uh, CMC four or greater cost two more to cast. So it's just it's a little narrow to be in the command zone, hitting snowlands. Not enough people are really playing snowlands or snow matters cards. Mm. So I, I think it just kind of falls short. The tax is fine, but it's not impactful enough. Or the other thing that might factor into a commander being bad is it's trying to do too many things at once. Um, hmm. maybe the, the commander's unfocused or it's doing one thing, but then it's kind of trying to do a different thing with another ability. And so there's no real direction to that. And maybe sometimes it, the abilities might even be at odds with each other too. Um, we've mentioned several commanders in the past that the, what it's trying to do on one axis combats itself, what it's trying to do on the other axis. So those are two big things that I would consider personally when it comes to evaluating: like is this commander or the deck you're trying to build just Bad. Maybe not dirtily, but just <laughs> it, it's fighting against itself or it's just not doing enough. And you're just gonna want to look at something else for your commander.
2: Yeah. I, I can think a lot of, of a lot of those. Like b- there are sometimes commanders to like try and find examples of what you were just talking about. Like Rigo's uh Streetwise Mentor came out a little while ago, and that is a it's one of the commanders from new Nukapana that draws you cards if you attack with creatures that have power one or less. And that is a commander, like that effect is cool, but it is literally restricting what your deck is trying to do. So that would be like I mean, I'm sure I could find a lot of cool stuff to do with this deck, like attack with a mirror entity and then, you know, buff up everything after blocks have been not declared or or, or whatever, like to reward that so that I get the commander's effect and also can still do lethal. But the commander is putting a restriction down there. And I don't think that's necessarily a bad commander. I think that the payoffs can be worth it there compared to like... (laughs) uh other examples of like they are too narrow they don't have enough support like uh, gorion wise mentor is another i think also bond commander that cares a lot about adventures that came out in the baldur's gate set and there just aren't a lot of adventures in those colors to really flesh that deck out necessarily and so yeah that could be easily a thing that you run out of patience for and i would be hesitant to call them bad maybe still like waiting no, is that like they they have potential but the potential hasn't been
0: unlocked. They're not the one Neo. Like I don't know. Does that does any of that make sense? I I, I think I think waiting is a good way to put it though because <laughs> just because I mean when we first saw in Zendikar Rising, we saw all the party matters stuff. Mm-hmm. A lot of those commanders, they didn't really have enough either payoffs for a command or for for a full party. You only had one set worth of cards that cared about a party, but also some of the colors were pretty restricted. I mean, if you're playing the Orzov, it's you're pretty narrow with the amount of wizards that you can have in your party deck. So it's just, they hadn't really fleshed out the ideas yet. If they made an energy commander, hint, hint uh, (laughs) Watsy, then it, you really only have maybe a set and a half because you have the original Kaladesh block. So you have a set and a half worth of cards to pull from, and there's not enough support there either. I think that definitely is a, a factor in how, long they're waiting for proper support to be because landfall commanders every set is a landfall commander supporting set (laughs)
2: that's that's absolutely true and you're absolutely right there are certain like admiral beckett brass did not used to have enough pirates she has enough pirates now dungeons decks did not have enough dungeon stuff but then the initiative came out and now sephiris is actually like pretty supercharged still dirtily but has a lot more that it can do so yeah those are decks that were just like waiting for their potential to
1: unlock so what do you guys do if you find yourself with a deck that you do feel like is in a position where it is too dirtily? Is there any, like, thing you fall back on? Do you, like, I'm just going to put a combo in? What is it you do? Because um, I, I can give you an example here. Uh, um, probably my other dirtily deck is, is my Gliss of the Trader deck. Um, it, it just, how it's built and how it plays, I just don't have a bunch of good ways, or, or many good ways at all to win the win the game. Once upon a time, when I first built it, you know, eight years ago, the way commander worked is I could rely on having a four, four in play when someone was at four life. <laughs> but like that's <laughs> that was a win condition at one point in time. But That's not really how commander works anymore. Um, so that's the one deck where I'm running overruns, where I'm running overwhelming stampede and, and overrun and things like that, because mm-hmm. I'm playing green. So like I can you can default to that if you're playing a green creature deck. Um, So I have there, that's the only deck where I really run those effects, but is is there any kind of go-tos you do or anything you guys do when you're looking to try to find a way to turn a corner with one of these decks? I I would say for
0: me, I just tend to scrap the deck. If I've tried to tinker and and play around here and there, uh, I often will just scrap the deck and and either convert it, salvage the pieces, or just find a new commander and just take it apart and come back to that color combination later. Uh, My Glissa, the trader deck, you know, Dana, you and I used to talk about how we would compare our lists back and forth, but mine, I never really got to pan out. It felt like it was trying to do too many things. I couldn't get the balance right, which you've done a much better job than I ever did. And so when I got discouraged, my Glissa deck, I would tinker with it a little bit. And ultimately, I just gave up. I scrapped it. I took it (laughs) apart. There are other decks that I've done that with where I, I, I still will find like 10 cards together. I was like, oh, yeah that used to be in a deck together, and now they're just 10 cards laying in a box somewhere.
2: This is this is tough, because I, I think for me, I have certainly built decks before where I noticed that like I was feeling like, okay, I need to find a win condition that actually like sets things up, but I tend to not want to do combos, for example, like an infinite combo, as the way that I'm going to win the game. And I feel like, I, I want to also, like, clarify right there that there is not judgment from me for people who do use infinite combos to close a game. out sure. Because, again, I would prefer for the game to end in a timely fashion as opposed to being pecked by a uh, by not a Muldrotha, a moldrifter, uh you know, 20 turns, something like that. Like, I, I appreciate that. And I feel like there are some commanders out there where, like, realistically i'm not going to expect that mono blue wizards deck to deal a bunch of combat damage to win the game you know i'm probably going to expect some type of infinite combo but it's not the thing that i wanted to default to so what i tend to do is probably like just increase the density of win conditions that i have in the deck even if i think those win conditions are a little questionable like the the biggest the biggest example of this i think comes to me uh like when i was helping my younger brother build a Kadina deck for instance like that Kadina deck the pre-con came with like two cards that were good win conditions, or, or honestly, just two cards that were like win conditions at all. There was an overwhelming stampede in there, and there was a biomass mutation to make all of your creatures that are 2-2 morphs, or when they flip over, 1-1 creatures most of the time. Like, they're not very big. They don't do a lot of damage. They have crazy cool effects, but there's not a whole lot of them. Um, and we were very tempted like we looked at the biomass mutation and we were just like eh, i just probably yank that out there it's not a good card right oh wait no that's one of the only ways that the deck is actually winning the game we're not huge fans of it but we'd better keep it and we better find more like that even if we're not totally crazy about them so we went for some of the big ones like a beastmaster ascension and stuff like that but like we'll probably in that deck we would even just play like a regular overrun so that the deck has some actual punch even if we're not you know we compare overrun versus overwhelming stampede we're not in love with one of those compared to the other, but it's better than only having two total win condition cards in the deck at all. So for me, I think it becomes a density issue. It's a long way to answer that question, but that's, I think, where I've landed. So did we answer your question, Dana, <laughs>
0: I guess, is, is our, our, our wrap-up there? Or did we just ramble? <laughs> or, how would, or how would you answer the question? An answer? Yeah, turn it around on you, Dana. How do you answer your own question?
1: Well, so, so I, I do think this is the kind of thing where it isn't always necessarily readily apparent what that solution is. Because um, you know, these days I tend to brew decks, and I tend to have a win condition in mind or multiple win conditions in mind when I brew them. Sure, I didn't always do that, but it, it, just because you didn't do it doesn't mean you can't kind of find it. I'd like I mentioned with my Jero deck, I I was not intending on winning via token com- token damage in that deck. I just wanted to play mono white planeswalkers because I thought it was funny. Um, and after I played the deck, I then kind of came to realize, oh, a, a, well, a bunch of these make tokens, you know, every Elspeth does a couple of the Gideons do. Mm-hmm. Um, so like, what well, okay, I can, I can actually lean into that then. And like, well, there are things in white that care about the small creatures and they can buff those small creatures and care about combat damage. So like. That was something I discovered over the course of playing that dirtily deck, and now I've made it somewhat less dirtily. Um, so that is something you can do. Just because your deck is dirtily right now doesn't mean you can't find those answers just through playing it. And, um, you just have to be observant and kind of keep your eye open for those things.
2: I love that. That's a really, really good lesson is like letting yourself discover the deck makes a lot of sense mm-hmm. because, because the, yeah, I identify with you there. Like I tend to have the destination, like how is this deck going to win, tends to be one of the impetuses for me to build the deck in the first place. Like it's, yeah. it's no mystery how Conrad is going to end a game. It's no mystery how the Mimeoplasm is going to end the game. It's kind of like right there on, on the card. And as much as I, I, you know, it's not about the, the destination, it's about the journey that matters and the friends we made along the way. I, when I board a plane, I like to know where that plane is going. I like to know that the plane is going to land. Like that's kind of my philosophy about deck building as well. Um, so I tend not to run, it into, run into that issue too much. But it is good to take a step back and do that approach too, where you're allowing yourself to explore. Because that is a limitation on my deck building sometimes, where I, since I already know where I'm going, I don't always give myself time to wander and to enjoy the, the sights that a deck might
1: surprise me with. Is this something that you've ever stumbled into, Matt, where like you've built that deck, and as you've been playing it, you're like, oh, this this is how it wins, even though I didn't realize that? I, I would say I have two decks that have done that. My Alila
0: Artful Provocateur deck and my Riel the otherwise deck.
1: Both of those... Well, both of which could potentially be dirtyly if, if, if left to their own devices. Absolutely. So the, my
0: first realization I had to have was these are control decks. They're, they're not aggressive decks. They're not trying to move the game forward um, just because there, there was a theme that I was trying to set around. But also, I needed to figure out when I needed to shift gears. And that was the biggest thing. Um, So I really had to be patient with just the theme that I took into that deck. Now, Riel, obviously, a lot of discarding to trigger her ability. But finding something to do and make sure that all the the dirtling and all the value accruing that I was doing with all the sagas in my Alila deck... Figuring out when it was time to go and, and really move things forward, that was a balance I had to, to kind of juggle around a little bit. Uh, it, I was very happy when my Alila deck finally like took shape because before it was kind of a good stuff, you know, just playing some Artifacts Enchantments was very standard. So giving it identity, that was one thing that I think I had to flesh out to find enjoyment in the deck. But then also when I realized like what the deck was actually trying to do versus what I was trying to make it do, um, mm. a lot of times those are two very, very different things. Sure. When it comes to playing a deck, um, I had one idea in mind, but the the cards that I put in there were actually pushing in a different direction.
2: Yeah, Matt, well well said. Again, it's like allowing the cards to reveal the, the stuff to you or like allowing yourself to understand what it is that the the cards are trying to tell you. That now I sound like a psychic. Now I sound like I'm doing like mumbo jumbo music. That's not what I mean. Did any of it make sense? Am I just being silly now? I might just be being silly now.
1: No, I, I get what you're saying completely.
2: <laughs> I, I appreciate it, Dana. Um, and you know what? As one final note that I think we probably have to put into this episode, we might need to apologize to all of the Archalos players that are out there. Um, because we were talking about <laughs> Dirtle and not Turtle and it might be that might have been a thing that we probably also should have said at the beginning of the episode like sorry me and during Tower Shell but this episode was not about you
0: the Dirtle Turtle is the true offender of this because it's literally just taking its time right yeah <laughs>
2: literally as much as possible all right yeah this is interesting I think there's a lot to, of, of stuff to explore here and to allow yourself to explore here and to learn here to like Matt as you like to say it's always comes down to the intentionality and these are decks that are you know it, it's definitely 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 extra important to be very intentional about the cards that you put into decks like the ones that we discussed today and there are certainly plenty of other options so listeners we would love to know what are the dirtly decks in your experience what are the dirtliest decks that you've played and what were the solutions for that experience in your case we'd love to hear from you but with that fellas let's call this episode to a close if our listeners want to get in touch with us where is it that they can find us all matt
0: So you can find me on the Twitters at MathMS55. That's M-A-T-H-I-M-U-S 55. And don't forget, Wednesday evenings, we're streaming over at twitch.tv slash EDH RecCast. We have guests on every single week. It's always super fun. The guests, like, it's just so much fun being able to meet all these awesome people in the community, get to play some games with them. So just make sure you tune in. Um, There's just so much, so much going on there. Um, Can't say enough about it.
1: Indeed. And Dana. You can find me on Twitter at Dana Roach. You can hear me on my other podcasts, CMDR Central. I'm writing articles for Wreck and Commander's Herald, and you can find all of us together at patreon.com slash
2: And I'm Joey Schultz. You can find me at Joseph M. Schultz on Twitter, and you can find the cast at EDH Reccast on Facebook and on Twitter. Plus, if you've got a question for us, you can contact us at edhreccast at gmail.com. Our thanks go out once again to Chase for assisting me with the post-production of the show. You can find them online at Mana Curves. And listeners, we'll be back at you next week with more data and insights. But until then, remember, EDH Rec your deck, before you wreck your deck.